0: We're going to study this morning Luke chapter 5. Let's pray. Father God, we dedicate this time to you. We invite and plead, implore your Holy Spirit to just work in this room, Lord. Uh, they're simply words until you get a hold of them. And I pray for life change. I pray for newness. I pray for refreshment today. And uh, just a blessing on everybody who came out. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter five. We're going to talk about um, Peter's call to ministry. Verse one. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in around him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little farther from the land. on what's happening here in chapter 5. We've got to back up a little bit to chapter 4. So if you can look at the previous page, we'll start with verse 31, talking of Jesus. And he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits to come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had had any who were sick and various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons came out saying, demons also came out of many crying, you are the Son of God, But He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew who He was. Verse 40, in particular, um, is a significant statement. As the sun was setting, it's significant because in verse 31, Jesus states that He was teaching on the Sabbath. And on that same day, but with the sun setting, the restrictions of the Sabbath are lifting, such as travel bans, various activities, so that all the people were able to come to Him freely. And Personally, when I study Scripture, and this might sound odd, but this works so well for me, is I do everything I can to imagine myself in the room, in the boat, uh, by the seashore, just taking it in. I try to put myself in the situation. And I imagine at this time that people were holed up in their house on the Sabbath, um, doing their best to honor God, uh, worshiping, resting, the things they should be doing, but at the same time I'm afraid they're probably afraid to come out of their homes for fear of breaking some Sabbath law that might have been added the week before by the Pharisees that would further restrict God's joy in them. So imagine that the sun's setting. They're probably peeking out their windows, out their doors, looking for the Sabbath police, seeing all was clear. They started to make their way outside. Restrictions are lifted. This man they've been hearing about in the region Jesus is healing. They're making their way to Him. He can touch and heal them. How often do we allow the restrictions, the do's and don'ts, if you will, from keeping us from approaching Jesus for healing? I'm not necessarily talking about salvation because all, if not most of us in this room are saved. I'm I'm quite confident. Uh, We're the church. But I'm talking about healing. Physical, emotional, mental, just healing. Have Jesus touch, touch that spot and heal it. But I have to be a good Sabbath keeper. I have to show well. I can't be honest. It's going to expose me for the wretch that I am. It's not a matter if God can heal me, but will he? I want to let you know you're in good company this morning. We're all people prone to sin, washed by the blood of Jesus. If we wouldn't, if we weren't, there'd be no reason for that cross. We're sitting here this morning because of the cross. We worship Jesus because of the cross. Our hope for eternity is because of the cross. That work atonement of Jesus that takes our sins and tosses them as far as the east is from the west. Could you imagine if Paul opened his letter to the Colossians like this? To the wretched, sinning scum of Colossae. Grace and peace be to you. <laughs> and make no mistake, the Colossians were probably a crusty bunch, prone to sin, but the greeting from Paul is faithful brothers. Believers are called the elect in 1 Peter 1.1, Faithful brothers, Colossians 1-2, beloved, 1 John 2-7, children of God, 1 John 3-2, a holy nation, 1 Peter 2-9. If you're writing these down, you're in trouble. They're also called saints. We're His. It's our identification. Our wretchedness was nailed to the cross. You're free. You're elect. You're faithful. Beloved, holy, children of God, saints. Now, granted, you may look a little bit like the Beverly Hillbillies of Christianity, and that's okay, because the reality is this, you are a regenerated soul dragging around a body of flesh that's decaying, and that's awkward. I get that. I have a Beverly Hillbilly story for you. I involve my family in a lot of my stories, but I never tell them it's coming, because they will edit. We were at Stacy's family reunion last week, and we were in um, Newport Beach. It's a high-rent district in California, by the way. We're driving along and there's a finely dressed woman crossing a crosswalk and she had a shopping bag full of those decorative twigs crossing the street. You know the ones I'm talking about where you take a vase and you put glass uh, stones in it and you put these decorative twigs in it. Some of you might have that in your home. Anybody in this room have something like that? (laughs) I know you do. Now if there's anybody here that's from Athol, St. Mary's, Spirit Lake, let me, let me interpret this for you. They take a bucket and put rocks and sticks in it, right? So I looked at my wife and said, why is that fine woman carrying a bag of kindling?" And I got a, a, a pretty substantial eye roll, and we moved on from there. But this is what it looks like for us. We're given the riches of Christ, the promise of eternity. We're robed in His righteousness, and yet, what is that smell well, that's the decaying body we're dragging around with us in the meantime. Your past mistakes nailed to the cross. Your future mistakes nailed to the cross. First John nine says, and I've never, ever given a sermon where I haven't mentioned 1 John nine, and there's a reason for that. If you confess your sins, if you own them, He is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a restart. It's a do-over. Okay, but I've leaned in that 186 times today, and it's not even... 11 o'clock yet. Well, if it was 187 yesterday, it's a good day. We're making progress. What I'm about to say next, and this is really nice because we have a staff at church here that doesn't edit. They don't. They just pray. And <laughs> they pray hard, especially when I talk. But people have gotten mad at me in the past, but I'm going to say what I'm about to say. And I would like to say, if, if you feel a need to leave, just sit down until I finish. If you have to go to the bathroom, don't go now because it looks like you're leaving. This is not my full time gig, but when you're down a pastor, you got to go to the bench, and sometimes it's the end of the bench. (laughs) But if you came here with a label this morning alcoholic, porn addict, compulsive liar, bipolar, depressed, drug addict, felon, rebellious you fill in the blank. Today, would you be willing to receive a new label? throw that other one in the fire which is where it came from. second Corinthians 5:17 therefore if anyone's in Christ he's a new creature. I told you it was 35 minutes Mike it's about 38 now. old things pass away behold. New things have come. In Christ, you're new. You're redeemed. Your well-meaning friends that spent too much time in psych class and college instead of in Scripture would have you believe that if you walk 20 miles into the forest, meet Jesus, you've got a 20-mile walk out of it. I'm telling you today. You meet Jesus and you're in that forest. The forest doesn't matter anymore. You're new. Amen? the old has passed away, behold, new things have come. I want to emphasize that word behold because a modern translation that might say, may I have your attention. I'm going to reread this with that. Therefore, if any was in Christ, he's a new person. The old things passed away. And may I have your attention, new things have come. Emphasis on new, not old. So your choice right now is to turn to 2 Corinthians 5.17, Tear it out of your Bible, put it in your pocket, or believe it. This Christian life is a grand adventure. And if you don't see your life as a believer, as this being a grand adventure, it's my prayer this morning, my invitation to you, this is your last day without adventure. I read about a youth leader many years ago who showed up, grabbed two video cases. One of them was Indiana Jones, had Harrison Ford on the cover, dripping with sweat, with a whip, cut on his cheek. The second one was a picture of a sewing machine with some fabric. It was a training video for the sewing machine. Now, I know some of you guys are feeling the call of the wild when I say Indiana Jones, but I also know that many of you, including my mother, Mike, possibly Mark Barnhouse, have an elevated heart rate when I mention the sewing video. But for practical purposes today, for illustration, we're talking about the adventurous one being Indiana Jones. Now, which one of these is the best, event? I picked on Mark last time, too. There's a pattern developing. Which one of these two best exemplifies our lives? Are we a training video or are we an action-adventure video? This Christian life is not a list of chores and do's and don'ts, but we, we reduce it to that. In some ways, it's comfortable. It beats you down, but it's comfortable. Because if we can make a list of do's and don'ts, that's something we can maintain. But if we lay it all aside and follow Jesus, oh, that's an adventure. When you walk with Christ, when you walk with Christ, it's all about the do's and don'ts. You're placing yourself back under the law. And I guarantee if you place yourself under the law, you're living a miserable life and the burden to earn God's favor is overwhelming. Galatians 5.16 says, if we walk in the spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I've heard that called a one-step program. No disrespect to anyone in a 12-step program, but really walk in the spirit, one step. Verse 18 goes on to say, if you were led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're not under the do's and don'ts if you're walking in the Spirit. Well, what is that? I need a definition of walking in the Spirit. Well, walking implies that the Spirit is going somewhere. It's movement. There's motion. And there's only one place the Spirit can go, and that's to where God is glorified. Our flesh has zero regard for God's glory. It seeks to glorify itself. So the measurement... This is simple. It's a simple measurement. I don't know why we make this so complex. You ask yourself, does this glorify God or my flesh? Am I walking in the spirit or making provision for the flesh? And if you remember, last time I was up here, we were talking about the, the false wall between sacred and secular. That notion that you can have a spiritual life where, like we're having this morning, we got our Bibles cracked open, uh, we're worshiping together but that you can have a second life outside of this. It's called work, play, entertainment, everything else other than what you're doing right now. It's a notion that you can check God at the door when you want to do something contrary to his word or something that might trip up his family. When I'm talking family, this is our family. At that point, you're just grieving him or you're pouring water on the fire that he wants to blaze in you. Have you ever heard anyone say about another person that that person completes them? My wife or my husband completes me. My boyfriend, girlfriend completes me. Or the phenomenon of the last 10 years, my pet completes me. That came out of nowhere. If you've been happily married for any length of time, you know that me doesn't work well in that equation. The two become one, and for the next 50 years, you try to to figure out which one you're going to become. In your relationship with Jesus, it doesn't work like that because me doesn't fit in that equation. But Jesus, do you realize who I am? Do you realize what I'm doing for the body of Christ, for this kingdom? Jesus' response is, "I am the I am." <laughs> we have a Potter clay relationship, you and I. As a matter of fact, you got attitude. Get up on the easel, right? <laughs> Jesus does not complete you; he displaces you. When it works like it's supposed to, for, like John the Baptist says, for him to increase, you have to decrease. I know it's painful. It's, it's very painful at times, but this whole thing is about eternity. This is a whisper, what we're doing right now. This is about eternity. The world needs Jesus, and it's our job to represent Him and represent Him well as His ambassadors. Now, this is the why in the road. This is the fork where believers disconnect and drop off and have little or no effect on the world, in my estimation. We want, to, we want Him to complete us. And honestly, that sounds kind of nice, but you look silly on His throne in your overalls with your straw hat. My estimation is two kinds of believers. There's a believer that recognizes their sin condition is so overwhelmed by the forgiveness of Christ that they can't help but want to share that with others and live out a life of gratitude. The other believer recognizes their sin and is grateful but takes this posture of thank you, Jesus. I hope you all find what I found. Believer number two doesn't want to be disturbed. He wants to be safe, and I get that. That's why we have defensible driveways, is it not? But there's only one way in our part of the country right now that you can be safe and undisturbed. This does not work in Iran, does not work in China. Uh, You can't be safe and undisturbed if you're a believer. But in our part of the country, you can be. The only way you get that is to offer that same service to others. It's a spoken, but far more often unspoken agreement. I will not infringe upon your belief system if you don't infringe upon mine. I'll leave you alone, you leave me alone. We'll coexist. And that sounds peaceful and right neighborly, except there's a day coming like no other when eternity is meted out on every person who has ever or will ever walk this earth. Every person is gonna stand before God and do the best that they can to atone for their own sins. Can you just get a picture of that in your mind right now? standing before God, trying to explain to him why you deserve to be in heaven. Because a lot of people believe that. I have a text on my phone from a friend in Oregon that just texted me that two weeks ago. He believes that. But God, I did this, I did that. I never missed a Sunday. I adopted a puppy, which is all the rage right now. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. People are going to sincerely stand before God. They believe there's this column Good and bad column. And on that day, it doesn't matter what you did or didn't do. It's what you're wearing. You have to be robed in Jesus' righteousness. Imagine this, sitting in a waiting room, right? You just pass away, and either God, St. Peter, Jesus, Mary, whoever does the tallying in these people's minds, pulls out the chart, and they thumb through it. Good, 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 bad, bad, good, bad, 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 bad. Pretty good, somewhat good. And they say, man, you gave it your best, but guess what? We got 49% good, 51% bad, off to hell with you. People believe that. <laughs> I'm sorry you didn't make the cutoff. And they wonder, oh, that clerk at Fred Meyers, she gave me back $5 more than I had coming. I've got the five in my pocket right now. It's gotta be worth a couple points. Can we re- reconsider this? Pew, shoot, opens, you're gone. Or are you better yet? How about the God that grades on a curve? Everyone, look at the person on your left right now. Surely that person's sin improves your chance to get into heaven, does it not? Now, guys, if it's your wife on your left, you have no hope. The truth is everyone gets an F in righteousness class, right? We all fail it. Fail. F. You want to be able to say, I'm with him. (laughs) You have to be robed in his righteousness. God will not receive you based on what you do. It's all about what Jesus did on the cross for you. Now, is that not something to talk about? Why would anyone want to keep that to themselves? I don't think, I personally don't think you can hide gratitude. And at the end of the day, that's all you have to offer. Now, all that's introduction. Now, let's get to the word. (laughs) All right, well, Peter's probably making his way to his boat for an evening of fishing. And at the same time, He's watching Jesus heal. And I like this because uh, many times, he, as Jesus is making his way through a particular village, the folks that come up to him get healed. Um, maybe he doesn't heal everybody, but in this instance, he says he healed everybody. He touched every, He personally touched every single person to heal them. Not like the televangelist that swings his whatever. Jesus touched these people and healed them. Can you imagine the evening? Jesus is touching everybody Imagine the joy in that place, the relief and excitement. There's an occasional shrieking demon, but other than that, it's a lot of joy going on there. And Peter's taken in all of this information. He's just taken it all in, including the heel of his mother-in-law, and he's on his way to work. But does Peter but little does he realize that he's about to receive an invitation to take an adventure that's going to cost him his life. And 2,000 years later, we're still going to be talking about him, what he did, what we'd be like to be like? In his teachings, this adventure. On chapter 5, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennasaret, which, by the way, is the same thing as the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiber- Tiberias, all the same thing. The crowd was pressing in to him because why? Because he had the words of life. In John chapter 7, you remember the Roman guards go and try to, they're commissioned by the Pharisees who will capture Jesus and drag him back to them. But the guards are overwhelmed when they get there by the fact that no one had ever taught like this before. The Pharisees were disgusted. Have you been deceived too? And then in John chapter 6, Peter watches as some of Jesus' disciples walk away after a hard teaching and notice that Jesus did not chase them, but instead turned to his 12 and said, do any of you want to leave as well? And it's at this point that Peter says what everyone on the beach that day is, is hearing You have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? Jesus is speaking refreshment. He's speaking life. For those who are beat down with religiosity, refreshment in a dry and weary land, especially coming off the burden of the Sabbath. Now, I'm not talking about the biblical Sabbath, the one that God installed. I'm talking about the Sabbath that man adulterated and people of Jesus' day and today, for that matter, are still trying to keep. Verse two, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were, wa- were washing their nets. And getting into the boats, which was Simon's, who was Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. I would think this would be awkward. It's kind of like asking somebody to sit on stage while the pastor's speaking. Even more so when everyone knows you're a commercial fisherman. I I personally have done that. I've commercially fished. It's miserable. <laughs> I failed miserably at it. Imagine, like, deadliest catch with one guy on the front of the boat throwing up for a week. That was me. (laughs) Fishermen are crusty folk, let me tell you. And I'm sure there's measured contrast between Jesus and Peter as this crowd watching, both of them. And as more Jesus speaks, the more Peter feels the disconnect there as well. But when Jesus finished speaking, he looks at Peter and says, put out in the deep and let your nets down for for a catch. Peter uses a word that's found only in the book of Luke for the word master. It can be translated as leader, commander, or even boss. Master, we toiled all night, but at your words, I'll let down the nets. There has to be a brief moment in time when Peter's challenged by Jesus' request to fish at this time. Peter's probably exhausted. Everybody ever work graveyard shift? That's, that's hard. He just finished washing his nets in preparation for the next night. He's also a professional fisherman. He knows the best time, the best location. And I'm not sure if Peter knows at this time that Jesus is a carpenter, but I'm pretty confident he knows he's not a fisherman based on his request. James and John are probably thinking, glad they picked Peter's boat. Just the same, Peter submits, and Jesus performs a miracle that will be a foreshadowing of a life of evangelism that he'll soon embark on. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help. Now Now James and John went in on this. And they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Do you wonder why it's at this moment that Peter acknowledges his spiritual bankruptcy? What is it about a boatload of fish that drives Peter to the feet of Jesus? And quite honestly, I don't know. But I'm going to share some conjecture I have on that. Remember, Peter is watching as his mother-in-law is healed and his multitudes are healed. Peter's on his way to work. He has to be overwhelmed by the miracles at the moment. He has to be. But as a man, I'm confident he's also overwhelmed by the need to provide for his family, right? No fish, no food. This was his livelihood. And here's a stretch, but maybe Peter's mom-in-law gave away all the food to the multitudes because we know she had the gift of hospitality, didn't she? I love that story about her because it says, and immediately after being healed, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. She had things to do. If that had been a guy, Peter's father-in-law, it'd probably more like, can someone help me to a recliner and bring me water? And she's like, anyone for falafel? I mean, bam. If Jesus had healed her last, maybe Peter gets the night off. You don't know. My wife has that same gift, and it's an expensive gift, let me tell you. I often interpret it as a curse, but there in First Peter four nine it says it's a gift. And I know what it's like to see swarms of teenagers raid my refrigerator and strip it bare. And we call that a gift, right? She does have her limitations though. She'll often write the words mom across something she doesn't want the hordes to get a hold of. I remember the first time I saw that, I picked that up. Mom. I'm looking around. She's not my mom. <laughs> first that's the first thought. So I stare at it for a while wait a minute, wow, right? Mom, wow. So either this is for my wife or it's really good. Wow, I ate it. and it wasn't. Now she underlines mom and puts an exclamation point so there's no, no mistakes anymore. Men find some of our greatest contribution in provision. Peter worked graveyard, he brought home nothing. In a moment, he sees that Jesus is his ultimate provider. I think a combination of all that Peter sees Jesus doing, healings in his family, and this very moment in time drive Peter to his knees. This was a true miracle, and it overwhelmed Peter. Jesus' greatness magnified Peter's insignificance. And as a side note, also in verse 8, I think it's a tree that it says that when he saw it, because at the time, Peter is doing it, right? He's, he's pulling in nets at the time, pulling in fish. He's fighting to get the nets and the fish in the boat, but it says at the moment he saw it. Okay, this was that moment when all things culminated into Peter's preparation for the call to follow Jesus. This is where the adventure begins. It's where Peter ends. Our adventure begins when we end. I'm telling you, and I've said this before, there's some battle-hardened saints in this room. You younger folks, find somebody with gray hair, take them out to lunch, and ask them to tell you What it's like to follow Jesus through thick and thin triumph, tragedy, peaks, valleys, leaning into him and declaring to this day how faithful he is. Older folks with gray hair, amen. They've lived it. They've got stories, they're living it now. When we surrender tomorrow to the one that's already there, we're living the adventure. We all we often too live this life as some huge burden. Oh, I can't believe what I have to give up to follow Jesus. Oh, I die daily. We portray him as impotent when it comes to our needs. We portray him as part of a well-balanced life. We portray him as safe, as predictable. This life of adventure is a wild ride. And it's not so much about knowing where you're going as knowing who's leading the way. Like the sewing machine training video, I understand there are seasons of discouragement and that's fair, but at the end of the day, we've been redeemed, we're new. Any day you don't have to pay for your own sins is a good day. That's why Paul is able to say that the trials of life in 2 Corinthians 4.17 are light and momentary affliction. Okay, you can't say that about cancer. You can't say that about a relationship you don't want to be in. You can't say that about personal loss unless you have your eyes on eternity. Then it is momentary and light. Again, any day you don't have to pay for your own sins, it's a good day. All of my daughters, when they were young, they played this game. Oh, some of you know the story. It's so funny. They would dress around and walk, dress up and walk around in our front room like they were um, immigrant orphans, sojourners in a barren wasteland, which is typically our front room. Now, Andrea, the middle daughter, she was so bubbly and vivacious, she didn't play the role very well, so she'd get stared down by her sisters when she starts giggling. But it was one of, during one of the episodes of Immigrant Orphan, the Kirsten Girls Saga Continues, that Lexi, my youngest one, which is the one that was here, right here this morning, she walked up to her mom and I and said, she came up to introduce herself. She was probably five at the time. said, my name is Ab. I was born in an outhouse. <laughs> With somber response, I said, well, that's a unique name. She said, well, it was supposed to be Abigail, but my parents died before they could finish it. That is a true story. Of course, at that moment in time, we told her, well, we'll adopt you and take care of you, feed and clothe you like we do every week that you play this game. And now look at her. She's on worship team. She has a new name. It's Alexa now. The rest is history. Are we sojourners? You better believe it. This isn't our house. This isn't our home. But in no way are we orphaned. In Ephesians 1.5, we're adopted into God's family through Jesus. Scripture says this is His will and His pleasure. He wanted us not because we have anything to offer him, because he's good and he loves us. Again, this was his will and his good pleasure to adopt you. Verse 9 For all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. Also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Don't miss for one second. That Peter just walked away from the greatest catch that maybe he had ever even heard of, and also the notoriety of having the best fish story in the village forever to follow Jesus. That's what makes this blessing so much more immense for me. At this moment in time, Peter must leave everything or Jesus leaves Peter. I know that sounds hard. But that's our choice. Do you realize our body right here, this whole thing started with two or three fishermen, the Sea of Galilee, that grew to 12 apostles, that grew to thousands being saved at Pentecost, to billions throughout the last 2,000 years, proclaiming the greatness of God through Christ. I know we cannot manipulate the Holy Spirit and following Jesus is a personal decision But I, like a ton of you I'm sure, are weary that we are seeing so few people come to Christ in our community and our church. It's burdensome for me. We have a beautiful family here, but we need to expand. We need our family to grow eternally. I think that everything changes when we decide that what Christ did for us is so important, so overwhelming, that we cannot help but share it with other people whether they want to hear it or not. I know that's not culture right now. But Jesus invades culture. <laughs> We're on an incredible venture of faith. We throw off restraint. We invite people to join us. We throw off those weights and entanglements that hinder our walk. Do you realize how hard it is to follow Jesus when you're dragging luggage? I want us to make history. I want future, to say, future saints to say, remember when that revival started at that little church in Rathdrum and spread over the whole area? I want that to be this church. and I'm not alone. Spurgeon once said, you set your heart aflame with the word of God and man shall come and watch you burn. Are you celebrating your forgiveness? Secondly, are you living in anticipation? What does the Lord have for me today? Anticipation is nothing more than faith in motion, right? Ten people gather to pray for rain during a drought. One guy brings an umbrella. That's the guy in Anticipation. Anticipation is not thinking, wishing, dreaming, demanding, praying something into reality. It's preparing yourself for God to work. Let's be that church. I need you guys to know there's a small group of men who have been meeting in here for a couple months. As a step of faith, they are training to disciple those new converts that we haven't seen. What the Lord chooses to do or not do will not be due to a lack of preparation and prayer on our part. Mike, come on up. We're going to worship the Lord this morning. And myself, a couple other folks are going to be up front. And I'll tell you, when Corey asked me to stand up here and stand on the side, I felt like an idiot when nobody comes up. But it's just a feeling. It comes and goes. At the end of the day, want to make this an opportunity for anybody who wants to stand up and publicly declare in front of their family, I'm ready for the adventure. Today's that day. Don't wait until you feel like it's time. If the Lord's tugging at your heart, come on up. You might say, He couldn't possibly want me on this adventure. I don't deserve His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. I know. That's what's so amazing about this whole thing. You brought nothing to the party and you take everything home? What a deal. All right, Mike, do what you do.